Well, good morning. My name is Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here if we haven't met. I hope to meet you after the service when we have coffee and bagels. If you brought a copy of the Bible, I hope that you did uh, find our gospel reading, Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. I'm continuing a series of sermons where we're going through parables that Jesus told from the gospel of Luke. And this morning, we've come to the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Notice verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. All right, so the parable begins with this outrageous, you'll see it in a minute, this is an outrageous description of this man. First of all, we're told about his clothing um, because that's probably the first thing you would have noticed when you saw this man. Um, this is a culture where clothing reveals status. And because of how time-consuming and expensive it was to extract purple dye from this little bitty animal and to then dye clothing purple, purple was extremely, luxuriously expensive. And it seems that while he had other clothing, this guy, he put on a purple robe every day. It's like he's got this constant driving need to remind everyone of his wealth. Notice it also says he wore fine linen, uh, which is a very tame translation. Technically, this is a phrase for high-quality Egyptian underwear. <laughs> so, so like I said, this is an outrageous description. So what's going on here is not only did this guy have these strikingly luxurious outer garments, in case anybody wants to know, he also wore underwear of the highest opulence. <laughs> This guy was through and through, right? I mean, he was consistent. So not only um, does he dress in this kind of ostentatious way, notice next we're told about his food. He feasted sumptuously every day. Now, remember the parable from a couple of weeks ago when a feast was given for an entire village to celebrate the fact that the father had received home the younger son, and the father, in his great act of grace and mercy, had taken the son's shame all on himself. And then to celebrate this amazing thing the father had done to bring the son to Shalom, the whole village had a party. Now, look, you need to know that Jesus, starting in chapter 15, verse 1, is the setting. And then 15 through chapter 16 is all the same setting. So this is the same moment that Jesus had told that story about a feast. And now we find out this guy eats like that village ate one time. He eats like that every day. He feasts sumptuously every day. Now, apparently, uh, th this would have been just remarkably outrageous. And to recognize that, I, I, I came across this study um, when I was preparing for this, that focused on the economics of the first century and, and particularly food and clothing economics of the first century. Here's a very interesting thing I learned. In the first century Palestinian context, if you wanted to eat three quarters of a pound of meat a, a, a day on, on, um, on your table serving your family. The whole roast is less than a pound, okay, for the whole family. If you wanted to eat 
three quarters of a pound of meat a day, you would have to be wealthy enough to have 30 workers every day for an entire year. Very few people ate meat every day. So it's, it's striking that this guy is feasting the kind of yearly feast. He's doing that every day. So this guy is extravagant in his riches. Now, next we're told at his gate was laid a poor man whose name was Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Right? So outside this rich man's compound was a sick hungry, neglected beggar, a poor man by the name of Lazarus. Now, many of you know this, that in Jesus' parable, in all of his parables, this is the only time a character has a name. In all of his parables, he refers to like a father, an older son, a younger son, a sheep. You know, he doesn't call him Betty or anything, the little sheep. Um, no character in all Jesus' parables have a name except this one. So when you read the parables, that's like, oh, this is a big deal. And, and, and it is a big deal. Lazarus comes from a Hebrew word that means the one whom God helps. So Jesus' audience, who's used to him telling stories, when he suddenly gives a name to a person that says the one whom God helps, and he's in such dire straits, I mean, you already feel like this is a bit of foreshadowing, right? Like, oh, this is going to turn out good for that dude, bad for the other guy over there. So here's a man, he is so sick, he can't stand up, and he's so poor, he's reduced to begging, and just like the younger son in the parable, he, same word is used, the younger son longed to eat what the pigs were eating. Same word is used here, Lazarus longed to eat what apparently the dogs are eating. Now, apparently Lazarus had a community around him who loved him and respected him and cared for him because every day apparently he's too sick to walk and members of his community, his friends or his family, they carry him to the rich man's gate. And this would have been the only person in town with the resources needed to deal with this man's medical and life situation. So they would have been hoping that this man or his guests would feel some compassion and give something to Lazarus. And then they would have returned at the end of the day, day after day after day, only to discover nothing had happened, to carry him back to the place where he'd stay the night. Now, this is a common Middle Eastern practice, okay, to, for the loved ones of deeply needed people to carry them uh, to their hospital appointments, right? We, we just, to the places where they can hopefully get help. But apparently, the deepest suffering in Lazarus's life is not the sores and not the hunger, Remember, this is a traditional Middle Eastern village, and they were tightly compacted. The gate that Lazarus was laying at would have been within earshot of the feast. And everybody listening to the story would imagine that. He's hearing the feast that this rich man is hosting for his overfed friends who are reclining together. Um, now, think about the image that the Middle Eastern peasants would have had in their mind as Jesus told the story, if you're familiar with how they ate then, it was at a low table, right? And so they kind of laid down. So they're reclining to feast while the rich, while the poor man, Lazarus, is reclining in his sores. The rich man covered in purple and linen, Lazarus covered in sores. There's this remarkable kind of contrast being set up. And here is Lazarus within earshot of their laughing and joking and feasting, and he's just dying 
kind of starvation. Now look at the end of verse 19. My Bible, which is the English Standard Version, it translates it, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, I think the NIV translates it, it doesn't have the word moreover, but it just says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Um, here's the deal. You get the impression in, in most of the modern English translations that, that he's got all this suffering right. And on top of that, these vicious dogs are coming and messing with him also. Moreover, in addition to, in addition to all that suffering, the, the, mo- the worst suffering of all, these dogs are kind of terrorizing him. Technically, the word used there is not a word of in addition to. It's a word of contrast. It's more like our word but. So if you write in your Bible, you could actually draw a line through moreover even and just write the word but. So you could read it like this. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. But the dogs came and licked his sores. In other words, the rich man will do nothing for Lazarus, but these wild guard dogs who attack all strangers somehow know that Lazarus is a friend and they do what they can do, but the dogs don't devour him, don't harm him. They do what they can do. I mean, there's all these remarkable studies that are beginning to come out of some kind of ancient healing places where there were thousands of dogs buried because there was a scenario in which dogs licking sores was considered some sort of medicinal thing. And the the view here is that the dogs who all through scripture are negative, they do right. They comfort. Now, now, We've got to learn the Bible so well that when we read the Bible, we're like the medieval monks. Our minds are concordances and they jump, okay? We need to read this and be reminded of Mark chapter one when our Lord Jesus Christ was in the wilderness 40 days starving and it says he was with the wild animals and the angels came and ministered to him. And just like in this story, we've got wild animals followed by angels ministering to him. We've got to, when we read the story, we've got to remember Isaiah chapter 12, 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with them and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child. We should remember these other moments in scripture where there's a key turn in the story involving animals at peace with humans. And here we have Jesus giving us this evocative description of this poor man living in kingdom come. Living in the kingdom of God, bringing healing where the beasts have been tamed. It reminds me of Joetta's remarkable painting that hangs in the Wickline's house of this young child that looks strikingly like my godson, Josiah, who's leading behind them this menagerie, right? This amazing parade of wild animals as she was depicting the new creation. So with the briefest of strokes, Jesus is giving us a clear picture of Lazarus as a godly, gentle soul, a man at peace with himself, within his suffering, who's living in harmony even with the wild guard dogs. And these unspeaking animals 
feel compassion for Lazarus and they help and care for him in ways that the rich man should have but didn't. And that brings us to verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. See, animals and angels right next to just like Jesus in the wilderness. The kingdom is coming here. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Literally to Abraham's bosom. Which is a Middle Eastern euphemism for two things. It can mean intimacy. It's the picture of a child worn out with angst and crying and pain, laying on his mother or father's bosom, chest, and just relaxing. It's what John says of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. It's a, it's a, it's a euphemism, a metaphor for intimacy. So here's, the, here's Lazarus intimate with Abraham. But it it also means honor. And again, from John's gospel, John chapter 13, verse 23, the only other time in the bosom is used in John's gospel is when it says at the last supper that the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining at table in the bosom of Jesus. So just like in John's gospel, Jesus is in the bosom of the father. By the time you get to the end of the gospel at the last supper, the beloved disciple is in the bosom of Jesus, that Jesus will bring us into not only intimate relationship with God, but an honored position. Because at a banquet, the one who lays next to the host, whose head is in the bosom of the host, that is the position of honor. All right. So in the bosom here can mean intimacy and honor. And here what's going on is Lazarus dies and is immediately carried by the angels to Abraham who throws a feast for him. That's why he was laying in the bosom, because he was at a feast. He's the guest of honor. He's cared for like a father or mother care for a hurting child. He's loved like Jesus loved John. So now Lazarus is rich, and Lazarus is feasting, and he's honored. Now, things don't play out quite so well for the rich man. The tables are turned. Verse 22, the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus by his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. So this once comfortable man, when he dies, there's no more fine garments and gourmet food. And it's not only his pain and torment, but he is acutely aware of Lazarus's good digs. He's not only hurting in his own self, but he's deeply aware that Lazarus is not hurting, that Lazarus is happy. So he pretended not to notice Lazarus his whole life. And now in his death, he can't notice anything but Lazarus and his suffering. At the end of verse 24, when it says, I am in anguish, that word anguish in Greek is hodonomai, the root of Odysseus. The root word of Odysseus, Odysseus' name in Homer and his identity, it's a word that means not only pain and discomfort, but restless, homeless. 
It's not only about physical pain, it is about profound restlessness. And this is in deep contrast to Lazarus, who is now not restless. He's now in the bosom of Abraham, at home, loved, honored, cared for, filled with a profound sense of comfort and closure and completion. And then amazingly, the rich man is still not humbled. He reflexively, in his own mind, he is still the master. And he wants Lazarus, like a slave, to bring him a drop or two of water to cool his tongue. I mean, notice, he doesn't even speak to Lazarus, right? Because that's his character. Why would he start now? He doesn't talk to untouchables. And now he plays the racial card. He has the blood of Abraham in his veins. He was circumcised. Surely Father Abraham will help me. You see, in the Middle East, when you're in dire straits, you can always return to the family patriarch. Remember the younger son? When he hit rock bottom, even though he knew, he knew it would be humiliating, he knew he could draw down on this cultural mechanism. Now, you expect the rich man to at least be like the younger son and to prepare at least a fake speech of humility, to have at least fake embarrassment. I mean, after all, he treated like dirt the man who is the honored guest with Abraham, right? So, right, if I've been talking about Keith all day long to Ashley, and I don't even know they know each other, and then suddenly Ashley introduces her brother Keith, I'm like, oh, dang. Like, that happened to me one time when I was in high school. I was so mad at my French teacher, and I was, we were at a restaurant, and I was trashing her to my parents. The next day in class, as my French teacher was calling roll, she got to my name, and she looked up and said, did you eat at El Toro last night? Her best friend was sitting at the table next door. You would expect that the rich man here would have had at least the shame that I had in that moment, right? To discover I've been ignoring the honored guest. But no, he doesn't. He has no shame. He has no change. Now, look, look what's going on here. He simply reminds Father Abraham... Hey, we're in the same race. And then unbelievably, instead of apologizing for his treatment of Lazarus, he asked for Lazarus to be his servant. Now, how does Abraham reply? But Abraham said, child. <laughs> I don't know. What, 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 what voice do you read this one in, right? <laughs> Is that southern? <laughs> Honey. Child. Remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. In other words, the rich man was indeed born a son of Abraham but he failed to live up to his sonship. And so it's too late. He'll never be comforted again. There is no opportunity for repentance after death. There's not any. 
Notice the rich man is not accused of being greedy or stealing or committing adultery or any other kind of sin of commission. He's being accused of sins of omission. He has neglected the poor and the needy. And in this story, like in other stories Jesus told, that is enough for damnation. Now remember I said earlier that the most painful suffering for Lazarus was not his hunger and his physical pain. It was something else. Notice here the great reversal is that Lazarus in verse 25, now he is comforted. You see the most painful evil in Lazarus's life was that he endured this treatment from this rich man. God gave so many good gifts to this rich man in his life, but this man used the gifts of God without God. This is building on the parable of the younger son. Just like the younger son and the older son in that parable, everything we have comes from God. But when we use the gifts of God that we've received from God, our talents, our abilities, our resources, our privileges, our money, our bodies, our minds, when we use anything we've received from God without God, it will destroy us. God gave so many good things to the rich man, and yet that man passed on only evil to Lazarus. So Abraham says it's too late. There's no more time. Verse 27, the rich man is not used to taking no for an answer. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, it's just getting worse. For this guy, if Lazarus can't be ignored as a beggar, then perhaps he can be used as a servant, a table waiter. And if he can't be used as a waiter, then at least let me use him as an errand boy. It's interesting. Biblical scholars through the centuries have noticed that the rich man's family was composed of how many sons? Six. In the Bible, bad number. Evil number. And when it gets really evil, you say it three times, right? This incomplete, broken family, this evil family, if they would have accepted Lazarus as their brother, they would have been how many? Seven. For centuries, the church has read this story that way. For centuries, they had a chance. And the chance was right in front of them, laying at their gate that they stepped over and ignored all day long. They had a chance. Verse 30. No, verse 29. Death has come, it's too late, right? So verse 29, Abraham said, they've got Moses and the prophets, let let them hear them. The rich man was a Jew. He had God's word. He had the Old Testament. He had everything he needed for life and death. And all they have to do is read the Bible, pay attention to the Bible, listen to the Bible. But this rich man is not accustomed to doing that. Remember, he feasted every day, which means he was feasting on Sundays, which means he wasn't letting his servants have time off. This rich man didn't have time for that, and he doesn't have time for this answer. He's not used to taking no for an answer. He's accustomed always to getting extra consideration, so he keeps talking from his position of supposed privilege, and he insists his family needs a special messenger. In verse 30, he said, no, Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. 
Abraham replies in verse 31, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There was another Lazarus who did rise from the dead and it did not convince the Pharisees. So even if this guy, did, he, Jesus says, you know what? That won't work. Because not only is there another Lazarus who's going to be raised from the dead, it's not going to work. I'm going to be raised from the dead. This is a parable about truth and consequences. We love the parable of the father and the prodigal son, right? We love, we love, we love to, to celebrate the grace and the unexpected mercy of God that rescues us and brings us home to him. But in the same telling of stories, the same God tells this story. This is true too. This is a parable about the abuse of wealth while ignoring the poor. Throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament, in the law, in the prophets, in the Psalms, in the Gospels, in the epistles, in the wisdom literature, and in Jesus' own teaching, when a person focuses on wealth and treasure, it can lead them to eternal damnation. Like Jesus said a few verses before this parable, in between this parable and the prodigal son, Luke chapter 16, verse 13 no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Look at the next verse, verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and literally turned their noses up. It translates ridicule to him, but it's actually not a verbal thing. It's just a, do you hear that? It's just a look. A roll of the eye, a mock. They knew better. You see, money is not condemned in Scripture, but what is condemned in Scripture is the love of money. And the love of money is so bad, it is so deforming and so, de so bad for us. It can turn us to the kind of people who would do this to Lazarus. It can do that. Loving money twists you. It deforms you. Doesn't matter how much money you have. There are many, many wealthy people who don't love money. And there are many poor people who love money. There are wealthy people who are not enslaved by money. And there are poor people who are profoundly enslaved by money. It's not the amount of money. It's your relationship to money. And wealth can lead you into idolatry with money. But poverty can lead you to fixate on money so much that you're the same place. And either route that you get there, it is so powerful that you need to read this parable because this is the reality waiting for you. Money is not condemned in Scripture. What's condemned is the failure to see that all we have belongs to God and we are stewards of his treasures. And the rich man uses his resources for his own self-indulgent living while caring nothing for God's way. And even in hell, he remained unrepentant 
and continued to see Lazarus as an inferior who should serve him or wait for him because, you see, his love of money had turned him into that kind of person. And Lazarus, who apparently, without money, had not turned into that kind of person, without money, hadn't fallen fixated on money. The rich man, money had become his master and had twisted his heart into doing things that God said, do not do. There is life after death. Death is not the end. But once we die, there is no more opportunity for repentance. Jesus is telling the scribes and Pharisees who were complaining about him showing hospitality to the poor, the sinners, the outcasts. Jesus was telling them, if you will, like the younger son, let me find you. If you will give your love and allegiance to me, there is such a wideness in God's mercy. You will no longer be restless. You will find that you are at home with yourself, with the natural world, with me, and with others. Remember, God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Galatians chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins... To deliver us from this present evil age. Until you have come home to God in Christ. No matter how much wealth or lack of wealth. No matter how much treasure or privilege or lack of privilege. You will not be at home. You will be restless. You were made by God. For God. So come home to God in Christ. And like Lazarus in this life. You will be comforted. And in the life to come, you will have joy everlasting. Don't wait. Don't delay. The rich man thought God was indifferent to evil. And to his damnation, he was wrong. Don't wait. Let's pray.